0: My name is Fiona Zeiger, and you're listening to the Migration Podcast. In this episode, Asia speaks to Big Glorious about refugee reception in Germany. They discuss whether refugee reception and reception infrastructure have changed over time and how the reception experienced by asylum seekers in 2015 differs from the one experienced by Ukrainian refugees arriving in Germany since early 2022. Today I would like to talk to you about your research on refugee reception in Germany and uh, especially uh, I would like you to reflect about your work on refugee reception and policies and how it was organized uh, in the past in 2015-16 and uh, the following years and what what differences do you see now how the reception is organized for ukrainian refugees well i i know that you have worked quite a lot on this and it would be really interesting to hear your view on the differences and similarities
1: yes mm-hmm. i'm i'm glad that we can talk about this and if if we maybe start with commonalities and differences the very start of reaching germany like if you look into the berlin train station in march 2022 that looks quite as the Munich train station in August 2015. So many volunteers who are trying to make a good reception for many, many people who are arriving, among the arriving people, many children. And in the first days, also a commonality, the absence of official authorities. So rather the the, the the volunteers, also like individual volunteers, but also NGOs that are, are taking care for those people who were arriving and just trying to give them first aid, food, some, some clothes, blankets, medical assistance, trauma assistance, a first screening of their needs. So this was a commonality. Then, of course, the differences already start. The Syrians who came maybe in August 2015 at Munich train station, after this warm reception by civil society, they were brought in a bus to a first reception situation, like a big hall or a big building where they then entered the registration process identification process fingerprinting and were then reorganized and um, sent to to different secondary reception places where they then had to wait that their asylum procedure started and as we know now when, when we look back that this sometimes meant that people had to move many many times so a lot of uncertainty in the process and also a lot of waiting while the Ukrainians were, a large majority of them were taken in by German host families and were thus able to immediately have privacy, have first orientation. They had the the security by the implementation of the temporary protection directive that they don't have to enter the asylum procedure but can really stay at that place which they have chosen and just try to start a new life there
0: yeah so this difference between collective accommodations um, is really one of the biggest uh, yeah biggest differences that we can see and what about the let's say rights that people had back then uh, and people from Ukraine that uh, they have now due to this temporary protection directive.
1: Yes, I think that's also a really big difference because people who fall under the temporary protection directive in Germany, and in fact the Ukrainians are, are the first, uh, this is the first group where this is implemented, have the same rights in fact as accepted. Asylum seekers or so people with a refugee status, and in social security and financial terms, they are treated equally as persons, as German residents or other residents or ordinary residents in Germany, who need social benefits payment. So that means that they get financial payments. That the the social authorities pay the rent, plus heating, electricity, and so on, for the apartments. They get a language class they can enter a free free language classes they get a consultancy regarding labor market access and they are also helped with labor market access and of course they have labor market access whereas the syrians who came 2015 had to wait until the asylum status was determined and if this in the, this ended in refugee status, they then also had all all those rights for language classes, social protections, social transfer payment, consultancy, and help with labour market access, and so on. But for many, um, this was a lengthy procedure until they arrived at that status. Mm-hmm. How long on average did it take for Syrians to get the status? Well, when they arrived in in late two thousand and fifteen, they had the misfortune that they were like in midst of this large the crowd of people who came, and the the authority the asylum authority who is uh, processing the asylum claims on an individual basis, which is very time-consuming procedure, was understaffed, under-equipped at that times, so that in fact many people who arrived in September 2015 had even to wait. Uh, for handing in the asylum claim for at for half a year sometimes so and, and we can see that in the statistics if we look at the german statistics the the asylum claim statistics we don't have the peak in two fifteen, but in 2016 even though the arrivals were in 2015 mm-hmm. so so they had to wait until maybe a half a year to, to be able to hand in the asylum claim and then it depended very much on their country, their, their country of origin. In the case of Syrians, there was the, then some kind of quick procedure because it was then clear that they were war refugees and would probably receive a refugee status. But for people where it was not such clear, like, for example, Kurdish people, people from Iraq and so on, they had really to wait until this individual procedure could start. And, and then the procedure as such was also taking a lot of time so, some of our interviewers with whom we speak say that they waited for 18 months, for two years, um, and during that time mostly they stayed in the collective accommodation and often had no access to proper integration offers. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, uh, yeah, this is indeed a very lengthy procedure and we know from research that it actually impedes integration prospects when people have to spend so many so much time in waithood um, so currently we see that Ukrainian refugees even though they are usually women with uh, care obligations for their children they are entering the labor market very quickly do you know of a percentage in Germany how how many people already have found work since they have arrived and how many didn't
1: No, actually not. I mean, those numbers are still very, very fluid and very volatile, and I I doubt that they are in the moment really compiled from the municipalities. So I only have anecdotal evidence. I know that Ukrainians sometimes still have their employments from Ukraine i mean we have we have 2 years of pandemic behind us so many people worked remotely and they are continuing to work remotely which poses the problem that the income they gain from this work is not uh, enough to to make a living in germany because the ukrainian income is much it's much less and then we have people who who quickly entered a training for rather low-skilled jobs where they don't need so much language proficiency in German, like for example in the tourism or the gastronomic sector. We also have academics who already um, are on their way to be integrated in the labor market, and I think all those uh, employments where language proficiency is not on the top, like for example in areas where English is used, Computer science, software firms, and so on. So there are there are quite good opportunities. On the other hand, and this is also a barrier which we realize, which is quite the same as for Syrians, for example, is that in Germany, for entering a qualified position and also being paid as a qualified employee, if you need first your professional certificates to be accepted, and this again can be a quite lengthy procedure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing this uh, to light. Indeed, recognition of qualifications has been a problem in 2016 and even before, actually, yeah. and uh, also nowadays. So I wanted to ask you also about the gender difference, mm-hmm. let's say, uh, on a general population mm-hmm. that have been arriving in 2015 and 16 and people from Ukraine that arrive now. Mm-hmm. So I think it is pretty obvious that back then it was mainly men who were arriving and then they were bringing in families through the family reunification process and then here we have mainly women because obviously men are not supposed to leave ukraine so do you think the gender dynamic adds to let's say differences in the reception uh, on top of the let's say status differences Mm.
1: let me first reflect a little bit about those gender differences. I mean, in the end, it's always also a question how we split the statistics. For the Ukrainians, it's usual nowadays to split first in the minors and in the adults. Mm -hmm. And among the minors, you probably, you usually don't look at the gender differences. You just assume that it's like the ordinary gender difference, which is about quite balanced between boys and girls. So in the moment, we say it's about one third children or minors below 18 years and then we have adults and among the adults it's yeah about 60-65% women and yes and again if we look at the age splits uh, we, we of course also have elderly people and there there's more equality in in, in terms of gender. Now if we look at this, those people who arrived in 2015 there it really depends on the groups. So we have Syrians who actually arrived with a lot of children, so we, we, we all maybe had about one-fifth minors among the Syrians who arrived and also quite high share of women, while in the general refugee population who arrived in 2015, mm-hmm. the males are the were the majority, however not this overwhelming majority that is that is perceived. Um, mm-hmm. Which is also, if, if, we, if we ask ourselves, why do we have those pictures, those images that you, among mm-hmm. the Ukrainians, it's mostly young women with very small children who are arriving. And if we look back in 2015, we see rather single men, young men, dark-haired men and so on. Um, then we really have to ask ourselves how, how those uh, pictures are produced and how they are selected. Because in fact, if we look at the statistics, at least among the Syrians, we have a lot of children, we have a lot of women. We have a slight majority of men, but not this overwhelming majority. While okay among other nationalities, uh, the majority was male and, and, and single movers. And but we know from our research that, or if we like interpreted from our academic perspectives as migration scholars, we can we, we see that those migrants are often pioneer migrants, like meaning that like mm-hmm. one person of a family who, who, who is forced to to move then the like the the strongest or yeah, the strongest person is selected to to go on this dangerous uh, journey to go to europe to to make an asylum claim and then hopefully be able to bring the family in. However, we also have women who who were doing this. who we really went on this dangerous journey as pioneer of their family uh, to go to Europe to Germany and then be hopefully able to bring the family in.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, thank you so much. It's really important to. Indeed, reflect on it, on this and uh, see the difference between the media portrayals uh, and the statistics. Do you think that media portrayals of uh, Ukrainians? coming to Europe and media portrayals of Syrians and migrants from other countries coming to Europe in 2016 played a role in the way how European society have been
1: receiving these Mm -hmm. uh, people. Yes, I think they did. And uh, I'm pretty sure that there's already also some media research on that, also how the pictures changed throughout 215 and 216 i can just remember from my anecdotal media reading that in in the summer of 2015 we had a lot of those welcoming pictures in train stations where the children, the refugee children, were were mostly really held in the cameras and they had some, some pets or some other presents which they were given from the civil society and behind them there were their parents. Later on if we saw like media discourses about the refugee processes towards Germany or towards Europe, we mostly saw mass pictures of masses, and in the, in the front of those masses only men. Yes. Yeah. So there was really a change in the selection of, of images, and I actually well I did not know research in that, but I would doubt that this represents the reality of that times.
0: Yeah. Mm. And well we could come back to the question of the reception on the ground and I'm interested to hear how do you think the way the reception has been organized in twenty sixteen and now evolved if it did. Because of course it makes a difference not just what individual people do and how they accept Mm -hmm. refugees, whether they accept them to their homes or not, but it's also the role of governments, the local governments and local NGOs that are involved in the process of my refugees adaptation and integration in the society. Mm -hmm. So could you please reflect a little bit on that and uh, the evolution of the support from institutional perspective?
1: Yes, of course. I mean, much of that support and of those differences are actually due to those different political frameworks. That, that are imposed on those different, on those two groups, like as we already discussed that the refugees from 2015, as they entered the asylum procedure, they were obliged to, in Germany to move to the first reception institutions first, and that means mass accommodation, and that means, in the second step, to be redistributed throughout Germany without having a say where to go. and again, really living or ending up in mass accommodation or in group accommodation until after sometimes lengthy time, people were offered private apartments. And this is really such a huge difference to the framework where the Ukrainians arrived. I mean, in 2015, it would just have not been possible that private families could have offered their apartments or a room in their house for Syrians. So because it was not allowed by law. It's not allowed by law. They have to uh, to to go into this mass reception or into the first first reception facility for a certain time to, to make sure that the asylum claim is processed and that all the other steps are done, which is the security check, a health check and an identification. And also the financial regulation foresees that only people who are treated that way are paid and by 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 state funds, by state money. And, and if families, I mean some for example, some refugees had relatives in Germany. So if those relatives said I, I would like to house this person also during the asylum procedure mm-hmm. after a while, when when this could become possible, usually then this host had to make sure that he or she really steps in for all financial issues, like also medical issues and so on. So this is really totally different to the situation today where the Ukrainians might move in with the host family, but the host family does not have to pay anything. So they like, they are supported by the ordinary social protection and social transfer system. So they have access to health care, they have access to, to social transfer payment and so on. So that makes definitely a big difference um, in, yeah, in in the first reception and um, like yeah, after that, the next steps are also shaped in quite different directions.
0: Do you think there has been some institutional learning uh, on the basis of the experiences that uh, institutions had with Syrian refugee inflows that played out a role uh, now?
1: Um, yes. I mean, of course, there was institutional learning like 2015 or actually this already started in 2014 that the numbers really went up quite quickly in germany in the end of 2014 there were many municipalities already complaining that they had no more group accommodations and started to 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 install gyms or beds and gyms for for hosting asylum seeking people um, and then started to to look for for housing for refugees, and also started to build, uh, yeah, rebuild, reshape their reception and integration infrastructures. For example, if we if we think about a county like a rural region, which in Germany may maybe does not have such a high share of migrants, that means that there is not so much a perception that you need. Um, professional capacities for dealing with migrant issues or with integration issues. And those counties until today, really like from starting from 2015, really installed integration authorities, uh, trained people in integration issues or in migration law uh, or in all issues regarding labor market access or language learning or how to really also assist schools or kindergartens to install language learning classes and so on. So these capacities and the awareness that you need that, this has been really built up since 2015 and this is quite helpful today. Also the cooperation with civil society, there was quite a lot of learning how that first that that civil society is very important and second that you need a good means of communication to really implement effective cooperation between civil society and and, and official authorities. And this learning is very helpful today. Unfortunately, some of those learnings uh, during the last years have been lost because some of those structures that have been built were based on temporary funding. And this temporary funding unfortunately ended during the last three years.
0: Yeah, so they had to basically now invest in this from scratch. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, to close our conversation, I wanted to to talk with you about, uh, say, anti-immigrant uh, populist politics. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, well, you're based in Chemnitz. And we heard from news and uh, also from the research that the eastern part of Germany has been hasn't been welcoming for refugees in the past. Um, Do you see the same tendencies emerging nowadays with the arrival of Ukrainian refugees? Or do you think uh, this has been mostly uh, because refugees that were coming in 2015 and 16, they were uh, of a different
1: religion? Um, I think there are at least two or maybe three aspects that are div- that are important if we look at this question and the specifics of East Germany, which is yeah part of the post-socialist world, really having this very yeah special note for Russian mentality. For example, in East Germany there was about half million Russian troops stationed during the socialist times, and there was in fact quite dense connection between Russian-speaking people. All the children had to learn Russian at school as a first foreign language. And especially among the older people, they were trained to be friends with the Russians, even if this was kind of superficial, but this is still like in their memory. So. This, this might answer the question why sometimes also the political mood in East Germany if it comes to, for example, sanctions against Russia, are totally different from West Germany. So I know that many elderly people in East Germany are objecting sanctions, are saying, no, we have to build peace with Russia. It's an important partner. We have to find ways how, how to how to, to to be inclusive and integrative and have a good relationship and so on. And sanctions are not helping us. So this this is really embedded in in this past, which is quite quite difficult to understand because of course there was also oppression by 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 the by the socialist system. Um, so this is one aspect that needs to be taken into account. And on the other hand, we have those. Yeah, structural racism, which is also everyday racism, which just yeah comes out stronger in East Germany. Why is this so? There is much less experience with diversity. There, there is, like for decades during the socialist times, there was more this, not individual immigration, but the population of East Germany rather experienced that people just came and were there, like for example, the Russian troops or the the contract workers from Vietnam or from Mozambique who were furthermore not really living individually but also in group accommodations and then in the 90s also in the beginning of the 90s also quite large numbers of asylum seekers and of of resettlers from Eastern Europe who had uh, German origins in their family biographies and these were really considerable numbers Mm -hmm. and population was was kind of overwhelmed during that times and um, this yeah this this again started in 2015 that population really had a high expression of 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 othering people like of perceiving those refugees as being different in in, in terms of, of skin color language religion culture and were not used to engaging with those people that were perceived as, as different. Um, if you now come to the Ukrainians, um, there it's really a difference how they are now welcomed. So I would say there is actually the same level of hosting people privately, of supporting people in East Germany as is, it is in West Germany. So we could say that this might be due to those racialized perceptions but I would also say that there was learning in East Germany. And what what I also want to stress is that we should not have the, this black-white thinking also in terms of public attitudes. Because in fact, in East Germany, even though there might be a high proportion of population who is rather anti-immigrant or very conservative, we do have very, very active and strong civil society who is really, who became even stronger during the last years and are really trying to do their best to integrate newcomers but also to fight racism and to to build peace in the public.
0: Mm -hmm. It was really interesting uh, talking to you, uh, very insightful, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Begit Glorius is Professor of Human Geography with a focus on European Migration Studies at Chemnitz University of Technology.